Good evening, my friends. I hope it is midnight wherever you are. Why don't you turn out all the lights? Yes, even that one. That's better. My name is Josh Hitchens, and this is Going Dark Theater. And this midnight I will tell you the tale of the Hollywood curse. What makes a house haunted? Many would say that after traumatic events, such as sudden or violent death, a house can become marked forever by tragedy. The spirits of the dead are trapped there, seeking to communicate their suffering with the living. Can these traumatic events from the past cause a house to be cursed? to negatively affect the lives of those who dare to move in? This is a tale of two houses in Hollywood. They are separated by a distance of only 1.4 miles at either end of Benedict Canyon Drive, but they are connected by strikingly similar human tragedies and by ghost stories that echo down to us through the years. There is a beautiful house at 9860 Easton Drive, hidden deep in the hills above Hollywood in Benedict Canyon, a house known for its history of madness, murder, suicide, and ghosts. The house itself was built in between 1910 and 1920 as a temple to old Hollywood. The gutter spouts on the exterior of the home feature life-sized wooden carvings of legendary silent film stars such as Mary Pickford, Douglas Fairbanks, and Rudolph Valentino. It became most famous and infamous in Hollywood's golden age for being the home very briefly of newlyweds Paul Byrne and Jean Harlow. Paul Byrne was born Paul Levy in Hamburg, Germany on December 3, 1889. In 1898, when Paul was only nine years old, his family moved to New York City to escape the rising tide of anti-Semitism in their town. Paul eventually fell in love with a woman named Dorothy Millette, whose birth name was Adele Roddy. Paul's mother, Henriette Levy, committed suicide by drowning when she heard of her son's plans to get married. The official version of history says Paul never did legally marry Dorothy Millette, but she was recognized as his common-law wife in New York State. However, this may not be the whole truth. Several contemporary sources, including Paul's own sister, insisted that they believed there had definitely been a legal marriage ceremony. The truth will always be shrouded in shadows. Dorothy Millette, by many accounts, suffered from mental illness and was eventually committed to a sanitarium in Connecticut for treatment. Desiring a career as an actor, Paul Levy changed his name to Paul Byrne and enrolled in classes at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. However, 
He soon realized that acting was not where his talents lay. He became a stage manager for local theatrical productions, but Paul had big dreams, and so he moved to Hollywood in 1920 to make them a reality. Paul Burns started his career in Hollywood as a film editor, then as a scenario writer for both United Artists and Paramount Pictures, then as a production assistant to Irving Thalberg, one of the most powerful men in Hollywood at the time, and finally as a producer in his own right for Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, Hollywood's most prestigious studio. His rise to the top of the Hollywood system was meteoric, and his artistic instincts were brilliant, but what Paul Byrne was most remembered for at the time was his kindness. Many stars from that era called Paul Byrne Hollywood's father confessor. Dorothy Millette did not go with Paul to Hollywood, but they wrote each other often. Paul also continued to support Millette financially, sending her a check for $350 every month, over $5,000 in today's money. When Dorothy recovered enough from her illness to leave the sanitarium and move into the Algonquin Hotel, Paul paid for it and wrote her a letter on MGM stationery saying, I hope it will be a happy change for you. Then, in 1930... Paul Byrne met Jean Harlow. Jean Harlow was born Harleian Harlow Carpenter in Kansas City, Missouri on March 3, 1911. Her mother, Jean Carpenter, moved to Hollywood with her daughter in 1923 after obtaining a divorce, hoping to fulfill her lifelong dream of being a film actor. Jean Carpenter was told by executives that she was far too old to begin a film career in Tinseltown. She was 34 years old at the time. But it wasn't too late for her daughter, Harleen, to become a star. In 1928, when she was just 17 years old, Harleen Carpenter went to an open audition at Hollywood's Central Casting on a dare from a friend. She signed into the audition under her mother's maiden name, Jean Harlow. Presented by her, pressured by her mother, the young woman now known as Jean Harlow accepted film work as an uncredited extra for $7 a day. During this time, she lived alone with her devoted mother. Jean Harlow's big break came in 1930 when she starred in Howard Hughes' film Hell's Angels, which became the highest-grossing film of that year. She became an international star. Jean Harlow was Hollywood's original blonde bombshell. In fact, she is the person for whom the phrase Platinum Blonde was coined. It started with her 1931 movie of the same name, which also became a huge hit. Jean Harlow's platinum blonde hair color was reportedly achieved by a weekly bleaching with ammonia, Clorox bleach, and Lux soap flakes. This process weakened and damaged Harlow's naturally ash blonde hair, but many female fans all over the world began to dye their hair to try and match hers. Although Jean Harlow was an audience favorite, the critics hated her. The New Yorker called her acting plain awful, and Variety wrote, It doesn't matter what degree of talent she possesses. Nobody ever starved possessing what she's got. 
Jean Harlow suffered under these sexist judgments. She didn't want to do movies based on what she looked like. She knew that her main strength as an actor was in comedy, which is borne out by the films she made. But life as a comedic actor was something the studio never wanted for her. All they wanted was her pale skin, her smiling, sensual face, and her platinum blonde hair. Jean Harlow is once overheard by a close friend at a Hollywood party, saying quietly but bitterly under her breath, My God, must I always wear a low-cut dress to be important? Then, in 1930, Jean Harlow met Paul Byrne. Paul Byrne was one of the few influential people in Hollywood that believed in Jean Harlow's talent as an actor. He spoke to Louis B. Mayer about buying out her contract with Howard Hughes and signing her to MGM, but Mayer declined. MGM's leading ladies were presented as elegant goddesses, while Jean Harlow's floozy screen persona was considered abhorrent. Paul Byrne then began urging his close friend Irving Thalberg, production head of MGM, to sign Jean Harlow, noting her popularity and established star image. After initial reluctance, Thalberg finally agreed, and on March 3, 1932, Jean Harlow's 21st birthday, Byrne called her with the news that MGM had purchased her contract from Hughes for $30,000. Her first big hit for the studio was the leading role in the comedy, Red-Headed Woman. One day, after a screen test for that film, actress Anita Page passed Jean Harlow on the lot and didn't acknowledge her. Jean Harlow later told Anita Page that she was so hurt by the snub that she went back to her dressing room and cried. When she lifted her head and saw herself in the mirror, she noticed the red wig and realized that Paige simply hadn't recognized her. That shows you how sensitive she was, Paige said. Jean Harlow was a lovely person in so many ways. Paul Byrne proposed to Jean Harlow in June 1932. They married two weeks later on July 2nd, 1932. They were an odd couple from the beginning. Byrne was 42. Harlow was 21. Paul Byrne bought the house at 9860 Easton Drive in Benedict Canyon for Jean Harlow as a wedding present. The newlyweds moved in, but the house was soon to be haunted by death. Only two months later, on September 5, 1932, Paul Byrne was found naked and dead, spread face down on the master bedroom's all-white carpet, his corpse drenched in Jean Harlow's favorite perfume, killed by a bullet fired through his head. The gun, allegedly, was found by his side. Jean Harlow was by all accounts staying at her mother's house the night Paul Byrne died. A note was reportedly found by Paul's body. It said, Dearest dear, Unfortunately, this is the only way to make good the frightful wrong I have done you and to wipe out my own abject humiliation. I love you, Paul. You understand that last night was only a comedy. Paul Byrne's death was ruled a suicide, 
but the truth may be more twisted than that. There are many who believe Paul Byrne was murdered and that the murder was covered up by the studio. When Paul Byrne's corpse was discovered by household staff, their first call was not to the police. They called MGM Studios first, as was customary at the time. Louis B. Mayer, Irving Thalberg, and one other member of the Hollywood studio elite were on the scene for a full two hours before the police arrived to investigate the mysterious death of Paul Byrne. Could those three men have tampered with evidence at the crime scene? We'll never know. It is known that Louis B. Mayer found the supposed suicide note written by Paul Byrne before the police were called. He decided to give it to the authorities a few days later. There was also conflicting evidence offered by the household staff. The butler, said that Paul and Jean were a very happy married couple, always hugging and kissing, but that he heard Paul Byrne often talking to Jean about him committing suicide. The gardener believed it was murder from the beginning and that the butler lied. He never thought Paul and Jean got along well and said the suicide note was not in Paul's handwriting. The cook stated that a strange woman had been seen by the household staff on Sunday evening, the night of Paul Byrne's death. The cook stated that a woman's voice, which was unfamiliar to her, was heard. The woman screamed once. She also said that she later found a wet woman's bathing suit on the edge of the swimming pool and two empty wine glasses nearby. There was also a spot of blood found by the pool. That was never explained. Jean Harlow was too distraught to be interviewed by the police, only saying that she knew nothing. She was also not called to testify at the inquest, which was highly unusual. Paul Byrne's death was officially ruled a suicide, but was it? Some have speculated that Jean Harlow killed Byrne and then the murder was covered up by the studio. However, there is very little evidence to support this theory. There is another possible suspect, one that would explain some of the strange evidence found at the house, Dorothy Millette. For four months prior to Byrne's death, Dorothy Millette had been living at the Plaza Hotel in San Francisco. She paid her bill and checked out of the hotel the day Paul Byrne was found dead. She then boarded the Delta King Riverboat on September 6, 1932, heading towards Sacramento. Several crew members recalled seeing her on board. A waiter recalled that she barely ate her dinner and seemed exhausted. At 2.30 in the morning, a man saw her on the top deck. He stated that she was crying and staring into the dark water, not noticing his presence. Two hours later, a night watchman found a woman's coat and shoes in the spot where Dorothy Millette was last seen. When the ship docked, she was nowhere to be found. The body of Dorothy Millette was found two weeks later. It was confirmed that she had committed suicide by drowning, eerily, the same manner of death Paul Burns' mother Henrietta Levy had chosen, when she found out that Paul wanted to marry Dorothy all those years ago. 
Paul Byrne's friend and fellow Hollywood producer Samuel Marks believed that Millette had murdered Byrne, and the studio made it look like a suicide to protect the reputation of one of their biggest stars. Better a suicidal husband than the scandal of Byrne being married to another woman. Harlow stated that she had never heard of Dorothy Millette, but several friends of the couple stated that Jean Harlow was not telling the truth about that. Jean Harlow never set foot in the house on Easton Road again and refused to ever speak about Paul Byrne for the rest of her life. Tragically, the rest of her life was not long. She died of kidney failure when she was only 26 years old. The house in the Hollywood Hills now had three tragic deaths connected with it, and they would not be the last. Stories began to circulate throughout town that the old Harlow Burn house was haunted, perhaps even cursed. At least two more deaths are recorded in the years that followed. One owner of the house drowned himself in the swimming pool. A maid is also said to have hung herself in one of the bedrooms. In 1963, the house was purchased by J. Sebring, who was said to be fascinated with the house's legacy of death. Born on October 10, 1933, J. Sebring was a hairstylist to the stars, completely reinventing the way men's hair was cut and styled. His top-tier clients included Warren Beatty, Steve McQueen, and Kirk Douglas. He was flown out to Las Vegas every three weeks to cut the hair of Frank Sinatra and Sammy Davis Jr. It was Jay Sebring who created Jim Morrison's signature hairstyle. Soon after he bought the Harlow Byrne house, Jay Sebring fell deeply in love with one of Hollywood's rising stars, Sharon Tate. Born on January 24, 1943, Sharon Tate began her acting career as an extra and then moved into guest-starring roles on television. When she began making films, she was annoyed that reviewers praised her body and looks while ignoring her talent. Like Jean Harlow, 30 years earlier, Tate believed that her true talent was in comedy, not as a studio sex symbol. J. Sebring and Sharon Tate became a very close couple. Sebring even proposed marriage to Tate, but she declined, saying that she planned to stop acting when she married, and for now, she wanted to focus on her career. One night, in 1966, Sharon Tate spent the night alone in the Harlow Burn house while J. Sebring was in New York on business. It was a night of terror that she later recounted to reporter Dick Kleiner in Fate magazine. Yes, I have had a psychic experience, Tate told Kleiner. It was a terribly frightening, disturbing thing for me. Maybe you can explain it. That night she spent alone in the house. Sharon Tate said she felt uneasy. I had a funny feeling, she said, that someone was watching her. She was exhausted but found herself unable to fall asleep as she lay in the master bedroom, the same room where Paul Byrne had been found dead. 
The house creaked around her in the darkness, and she began to feel afraid. Then she heard something outside her bedroom door. She switched on a small lamp by her bedside, which didn't give much light, but it was enough light to see that something had just entered her bedroom. I saw this creepy little man, Tate said, and he looked like all the descriptions I had ever read of Paul Byrne. The ghostly man seemed not to see her shivering in the bed. He did not walk towards her, but started moving around the bedroom unnaturally fast, bumping into things, seeming as if he was looking for something. Sharon Tate finally got the courage to jump out of bed and leave the bedroom. She ran down the stairs, and then she saw something that filled her with horror. I saw something, or someone, tied to the staircase. Whatever it was, and I couldn't tell if it was a man or a woman, but knew somehow that it was either J. Sebring or me, he or she was cut open at the throat. She could see the blood erupting from the bound figure's throat. She ran past it into the living room, wanting to fix herself a drink. She knew that Sebring had to keep a bar in there, but she had no idea where it was. Tate then said she had a mysterious feeling, some sort of guidance, although she heard no voice, that she should open one of the shelves behind the bookcase. She found a tiny button, pushed it, and a bar revealed itself. She poured herself a drink, still shaking with fear. It had to be a nightmare. Sharon said she pinched herself and felt nothing, so she thought she must be dreaming. The same strange feeling told her to tear away the wallpaper under the bar. She did so, revealing a beautiful old copper base. She kept the piece of wallpaper clutched in her fist as she ran up the stairs past the bound, mutilated figure that was now gushing blood from its wound. Tate saw the ghost of the creepy little man was now rapidly prowling around in the upstairs hallway, still searching for something. She ran past him into the bedroom and somehow managed to sleep. J. Sebring returned home the following morning. When she woke, Sharon Tate thought she had experienced a terrible nightmare until she found the piece of wallpaper still in her hand. Many people have wondered since if the ghosts of the Harlow Burn house were trying to warn Sharon Tate and J. Sebring about the horrific fate that awaited them both. Just a few years later, on August 9th, 1969, Tate and Sebring, along with Stephen Parent, Abigail Folger, and Wojciech Frykowski, were murdered by members of the Manson family <clears throat> at 1050 Cielo Drive, a house only 1.4 miles away from the Harlow Burn House. The blood-stained bodies of Sharon Tate and Jay Sebring were discovered tied together by their necks in the living room of Cielo Drive, a horrific echo of the vision Tate had seen three years earlier in the living room of the Harlow Burn House. There are two other eerie parallels. Like Paul Byrne, 
Jay Sebring was killed with a gunshot wound to the head. Like Jean Harlow, Sharon Tate was tragically only 26 years old when she died. If a house is haunted by tragedy, what happens to the ghost when the house no longer exists? The house at 1050 Cielo Drive, where the Manson murders occurred, was demolished in 1994, shortly after Trent Reznor recorded his Nine Inch Nails album, The Downward Spiral, there. Reznor took the house's front door with him when he moved out, the same door where the word pig had been written in Sharon Tate's blood. A completely new house was built on the site where five people met their horrific ends and the street address was changed. As far as I know, no paranormal activity has been reported in the new home. But our tale does not end there. In 2002, a man named David Oman built a house that was a mere 150 feet from where the murders took place. Spirits made themselves known while the Omen house was being built. Several construction workers reported that they heard footsteps walking around on the second floor when no one else was in the house. They also reported hearing voices talking and always found nobody present when they investigated the strange sounds. Another worker complained of sudden, mysterious cold spots throughout the newly built home and the eerie feeling that they were always being watched by something they couldn't see. Strange things began to happen as soon as David Oman moved into his new house. When he was putting out food for his housewarming party, he repeatedly heard someone knocking loudly on his front door. Each time, he went to the door expecting a guest, but upon opening the door, he saw no one was there. Nothing but darkness. That same night, a friend of David's named Lauren went into the kitchen. Suddenly, she saw a shadowy figure walk very quickly past the kitchen window. Lauren was unnerved because the house was built overhanging the hillside. The kitchen window, where she saw the dark figure walking by, was 32 feet above the ground. Another early guest to the Omen house became terrified when she heard a woman's voice whisper in her ear when no one else was present. The voice said, We just want you to know we're here. And then the woman reported that she watched several blood-red stains inexplicably appear on the dress she was wearing. When a friend asked her later if the woman thought she had experienced the ghost of Sharon Tate, the woman said that she never wanted to speak about the dress or the house ever again. David Oman reports the unexplained, unidentified voices have occasionally been heard speaking on the house's intercom system. He has heard sounds of labored breathing and raspy, whispering voices coming from his bedroom. Upon opening the door, the room is empty. His movie projector often turns itself on in the middle of the night. Many paranormal investigation teams have since visited the Omen house. 
Barry Taff, a parapsychologist who has reportedly investigated over 4,000 cases of hauntings, said that the Omen House is the Mount Everest of haunted houses, a Disneyland for the dead. One psychic who visited the home without knowing any information about it beforehand reported seeing a vision, a blonde, bleeding, pregnant woman walking very, very slowly towards the front door of Omen's house. Upon seeing this vision, the psychic fainted and refused to return to the house again. One night in July 2004, David Omen woke up suddenly from a deep sleep. The clock on his bedside table told him it was two o'clock in the morning. Then he saw the man standing at the foot of his bed, looking right at him. It was a full-body apparition, Omen said. The ghostly man was completely silent, but kept looking at Omen, then pointing out the window towards the driveway, the driveway that led to what was once 1050 Cielo Drive. The specter repeated this pointing motion three times, then suddenly vanished. According to an interview with L.A. Weekly, after this ghostly visitation, David Oman went to the LAPD to see if there was any connection between his property and the murders that occurred next door in 1969. Was there a connection? Or had the ghost simply moved next door after the house was demolished? A police officer showed David Oman some photographs related to the case. And then Omen saw one photograph that made his blood run cold. A photograph that showed a man, the same man that he had seen at the foot of his bed at 2 a.m., pointing in the direction of 1050 Cielo Drive. It was Jay Sebring. I believe that ghost stories are an important part of our collective history. Tales passed down from generation to generation, haunting our memory. I believe it is also important to remember that Paul Byrne, Jean Harlow, Dorothy Millette, Jay Sebring, Sharon Tate, Stephen Parent, Abigail Folger, and Wojciech Frykowski were all real human beings who lived fascinating lives, and they deserve to be remembered for more than just their tragic deaths. I encourage you to learn more about all of them. You may have noticed that I did not say the names of the people who committed the murders at 1050 Cielo Drive 50 years ago, and that is intentional. More than enough has been written about them by others. They are not the names I wish to lift up. If you do decide to learn more about that case, I highly recommend reading Vincent Bugliosi's definitive book, Helter Skelter. Next time we meet, I will take you to visit two secluded islands off the coasts of Massachusetts and Maine, where two old lighthouses possess strange and haunting histories. My name is Josh Hitchens, and this is Going Dark Theater. Until our next midnight together, 
I wish you all very pleasant dreams. And now... <laughs>